just want to get that out there. <laughs> Help Kareen feel slightly better about who I am as a person. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Kareen from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Keep It Fictional. I'm joined once again by my book friends, Kareen, Virginia, and Sadie, who some of you may recognize from the past. She's now back from her leave after more than about was it 13 months or so, I think it was. More or less, Sadie was off on her maternity leave, but she is back now, and we're happy to have her here for the first episode of Keep It Fictional in quite a while. So thank you, Sadie, for being with us once again. So today we thought it would be a good idea to give ourselves the opportunity to tackle some of our long-awaited to-be-read list entries by each picking a book by an author who we have always meant to read, but have never quite got around to actually reading for one reason or another. So I think it will be interesting to see what kind of authors and works we hear about today if they'll be more classics from long ago that we've known about for ages but never read, or more recent authors that are just up our alley but did get a chance to read when they first came out. So to start off today, I think we will go to Kareen. Yes, and I, I might hesitate to say that this is a good idea. I mean, it is a good idea. I didn't necessarily take it as a good idea, though, because I chose more of an author that I feel that I should read, not necessarily that I wanted to read, but I was a bit of a stone cold genius about this in that I chose the author who had written a very famous, very short novella coming in at a sweet 92 pages with illustrations. I chose Ernest Hemingway's The Old Man and the Sea. Just look at that thin, sleek, compact volume, not even as thick as my finger. Amazing. So Ernest, I like it when you call me Big Papa Hemingway, is a titan of American literature, the mayor of Mantown on Man Island, strolling down Man Avenue and then on a man day in the Mandernoon. He is a legendary figure, question marks, founder of the iceberg theory, which means you take a sentence and you just kind of chip it away until it's real short and real readable, which is very influential on 20th century literature. He is the winner of the Pulitzer Prize of Literature as well as the Nobel Prize of Literature. He only actually published, which I didn't know until I read his Wikipedia article this morning, uh, seven novels, six short story collections, and two nonfiction works. Most of them were actually published posthumously, which I thought was very interesting for someone who has such a huge and loom so large and mustachioed in the collective mind that he actually has a very small amount of work that he did. Apparently one novel that was absolute rubbish, but that's what happens when you fall in love with a 19-year-old on vacation. So Hemingway kind of went through a lot shall we say? In 1918, he actually served on the Italian front as an ambulance driver, got wounded, married four wives, was part of the lost generation, also kind of served in the Spanish Civil War as a journalist, as well as was at, this blows my mind, present at the Normandy landings and the liberation of Paris. So he's seen a lot and kind of knowing that in the back of your head, some of his ideas about, I don't know, let's say like masculinity, you kind of see where that's coming from, knowing what he lived through. 
Um, so The Old Man and the Sea was actually written in eight weeks after his previously mentioned novel bombed so hard and so badly and was just like raised by all the critics. He's like, I'll show you I can write a book. And so in eight weeks, he scribbled this thing off in Cuba. And yeah, it won the Pulitzer and the Nobel Prize. So not bad for eight weeks of work. What I didn't actually know is that this book is based on a real story that Hemingway knew about of a Cuban fisherman who was found by the Coast Guard holding on to what was kind of the remains of a fish and crying. And so he kind of took this, essentially the whole thing, and then made it into a metaphor? Let's dive in. It is about an old man named Santiago who is considered a salao. He's considered unlucky. It's been 84 days since he has caught a fish. And for a fisherman, this is kind of a problem because you need the fish to, to be the fisherman. He previously had been training a young boy who he mostly refers to as boy. And then I found out in the Wikipedia article, his name is Manolin. <laughs> All right, sure. We're going to call him boy. Who has Santiago has been training and kind of mentoring. And the boy also has been taking care of him. Santiago is quite old. He's no longer able to really care for himself. And so this boy frankly, out of the goodness of his own heart, because he might be Jesus, I'm not sure, is taking care of this old man in his dotage. On this 85th morning, Santiago decides that he's going to go far, far, far out into the Gulf Stream, away from all the other boats, and catch some really great fish. That's the plan. And you know what? It kind of works. He goes out far away from all the other boats and manages to catch a marlin, but not just any marlin, a giant 18-foot marlin that doesn't want to die. And so this fish starts pulling his boat further and further and further away from the land, but Santiago holds fast and does not let go of the line. For two days and two nights, he survives just holding onto this fish and waiting for it to die. But, well, big bummer. When the fish finally kind of like gives up the ghosts, uh, the problem is then it's a dead fish in the middle of the ocean and sh sharks. <laughs> so this is the story of a really bad fishing trip, but it's also an allegory. And the best part is, is that fish can be anything. So while I was on the SkyTrain this morning, I made a little list of what fish could be. Fish could be God. Fish could be sin. Fish could be masculinity. Fish could be the dreams of our youth, regrets, virility, hubris, ego, pride, dogmatic systems of belief, prejudice, platonic ideals, and or capitalism. Fish can be anything you want it to be. And that is kind of the genius of this book, is that it's such a simple story that it almost reads like an allegory that you can graft onto anything you want it to be. Do you want this to be a story about your mother, then Fish's mother. It all works. It's very readable because it's very short and the sentences are not that long. It's not a complicated story. And then you can kind of just like scratch it off of your list of books you should have read in high school, but absolutely avoided for very valid reasons. So yeah, weirdly enough, I do recommend that you read The Old Man in the Sea about Santiago's very crummy day at work. Thank you, Corrine. 
having read the old man to see myself i can definitely see how you could read very many different things into it like you could say well the old man he's like fighting with his masculinity because he can't tell the boy how he really feels how he really wants to be with him all day he can't tell him how he feels or anything like that so it's like well is that what it's about or is it about something else i'm not actually quite sure but that's what i chose to believe after i read it very long time ago so i think that i will go next i have chosen to read ravel stein by saul bellow now bellow was a canadian-born writer who lived in the u.s since his early childhood so He's not really known as a Canadian writer, but hey, maybe we could claim him as a Canadian writer if we really want to. He passed away at the age of 89 in 2005. He had a very academic sort of background to his writing. He originally enrolled in the literature department at Northwestern University, but changed to a dual degree in anthropology and sociology because he found the literature department to be anti-Jewish. He later did graduate and doctorate level studies and became a professor at the University of Chicago for nearly 30 years in a special interdisciplinary department called the Committee for Social Thought, which was a PhD granting program which taught social sciences, humanities, literature, and other kinds of a very large diversity of disciplines in a kind of interdisciplinary way to give like a more broad kind of range of teaching rather than like a lot of PhD programs. You're very much hyper-focused on like one specific thing, and that's kind of what you do. This was kind of the opposite idea. You're going to give a more broad general approach to, to learning, to teaching, to understanding how things work more or less and i think a lot of this is very much in the background of his fiction writing because not just the fact that it was done while he was also teaching but many of his characters have these kind of philosophical political social backgrounds to their characters that very much line up with some of the different people that bellow knew bellow was also a very highly decorated writer he won the nobel prize the pulitzer and the national book award among others and for example, I mentioned that his academic work was very much in the background of his writing, and that's very much the case with Ravelstein, because the book is also loosely based on Bellow's friend and philosopher Harold Bloom, who was a colleague of his at the University of Chicago, and other characters in the book are also loosely based on people in their sort of personal orbit, because this book was written shortly after Bloom's death, and there's definitely aspects of that character in Ravelstein. And so... Who is exactly this person? Abe Ravelstein is a seasoned professor of political science at an unnamed university in Chicago. His life has taken him to many places in the world. He holds prominence in certain academic and political circles, and he's even made a comfortable life for himself financially, having written a popular work of political analysis and cultural criticism. He's made the bestseller lists, which are all these aspects of this character are strikingly similar to the real-life Harold Bloom. But in the book, this financial and career success has been sort of further enhanced by his loyal following of students who in their various posts in government agencies, think tanks, diplomatic organizations, among others, has sort of left Ravelstein's mark on the world at large beyond his work as an academic or just some like random crank who wrote some books and stuff that you sort of get that idea of like the stuffy academic philosopher, political scientist kind of just nattering away who doesn't really have any influence or impact on the world at large but we sort of tried to get a view of that through his connections to other people even though he himself is mostly like an academic kind of writer the type of figure it is in his later years that the book takes place as Ravelstein turns to one of his best and oldest friends who in the book is only referred by his nickname chick but really chick is Saul Bellow really let's be honest he's because Ravelstein has turned to chick to write a biography of him after he has passed away 
And in the book is entirely told from Chick's perspective. We experience events from his perspective, his point of view on conversations, reflections, and remembering things from the past as he tries to assemble his thoughts and facts into what could be called a proper biography. Because the book is so tightly tied to Chick's perspective, it's not a book with like a clear and unbroken stream of events from beginning to end, from childhood to death in the life of Revelstein, but rather as a reflection on who he was in his life, what he meant to different people. And there's lots of going backwards and forwards in time, re-examining different periods of time with different people and different connections that Chick sort of mulls over these things and tries to decide what he really wants to say about who Revelstein was and how he will be remembered in this biography. So just a note on like who Chick exactly is. He might have this sort of clout or following that someone like Revelstein has. He's not a foreign policy analyst or doesn't work in the U.S. government or some of these other places that uh, Revelstein has connections to. But he has a deep respect for Chick's ability to write, to clearly articulate a picture of a person. He sort of believes that Chick will be able to go beyond a kind of starry-eyed view of his friendship with him to go deeper into who he is as a person to sort of reveal to everyone all these different aspects of his life. And that's essentially what this book is about, is the crafting of a portrait of Revelstein's intellectual, a friend, a gossip, a man who lived a very lavish lifestyle, and so much more beyond just these public aspects of his life. The book is also very conversational in tone. You sort of might get the pressure from this that it's very like chick, like racked with angst and deep introspection on how to be objective or whatever, but it's actually much more conversational. Much of the book takes place in places like hotel rooms, cafes, and cars with Chick and Ravelstein locked in conversation on current events and popular culture and various other subjects of their lives. Through this, we sort of get like a picture of Ravelstein's lifestyle, his kind of lavish life traveling around the world to France and other places, his free willing dealings with money and other things like that, who his students are, how they sort of still connect to his life long after they've graduated, how he kind of maintains these personal relationships with all of them how he's not like this kind of career man, quote unquote, like of a intellectual who doesn't really look after his students after they've left him. He tries to create a much more sort of traditional kind of like tutelage, where it's like a lifelong relationship between you, yourself and your students, where he doesn't just like send them off into the world afterwards and forgets all about them. We also learn about Nikki, who is Revelstein's lover from Malaysia. This is kind of like one aspect of the novel that was somewhat controversial because it's known that Harold Bloom did have a relationship with another man that but was not publicly known at the time of his death. Whereas in this book, it sort of became much more publicly known afterwards by Bellow's portrayal of Ravelstein's relationship with this man. It was also somewhat controversial because Bloom, as well as Ravelstein, is a much more conservative political thinker. We see sort of in the story, Ravelstein's somewhat hostile to gay rights, the gay rights movement, and some of these other things. But how can that sort of be squared with his own personal feelings and relationships? And how that kind of we're in conflict with one another very much, his own personal life with his more active social political life. So, as I also mentioned, Ravelstein was a prominent academic. He specializes in political science, but the breadth and depth of his interest lies far beyond this domain of power and politics. His thought draws on the dual lines of thought found in ancient Greek philosophy, as well as his Jewish heritage, the Talmud, and other religious and theological texts. Is these two currents that also weigh heavily on Ravelstein in his later days? Because as we learn later on in the novel that he is very sick, and that one of the reasons why he's turned to Chick at this time is because he wants him to sort of write his biography before, like after he is gone. He knows that his days are somewhat numbered. Um, and at this time, these two currents of his thought are kind of in tension with each other because 
He has a firm belief that philosophy is essentially about rejecting the divine, the mystical, or any other set of beliefs, including something like an afterlife or what happens after death. But also at the same time, he very much draws strength from his Jewish heritage, and he doesn't want to shy away from drawing strength and inspiration from the past of, of the Jewish people, the Jewish faith. So those two aspects are very much also prominent throughout the book, as we see him sort of like in his later years, moving towards death. His other interests in the arts, poetry, sculpture, fashion, food, wine, and so many other things that occupied his mind in his leisure time are also sort of in full display with the way that Chick describes his day-to-day -day life, their time together, and things like that. So these are just some of the various aspects of the more prominent things that are throughout the book, some of the different dimensions of this man who, in Chick's mind, eludes eluded easy summary or understanding as he tries to grapple with his role in other people's lives, how to put into summary these kinds of aspects of this person and this kind of person who in Chick's view is greater than the sum of his parts, just put sort of in a cliche kind of way. We can also sort of like reasonably sort of ask like, how do we evaluate the way that Bellow's fictional avatar Chick has portrayed his dead Fred Bloom's fictional avatar Revelstein, how that kind of fictional and non-fictional aspects blurred together and how to make sense of these different aspects. It kind of makes for like an interesting both biographical and fictional puzzle and portrait of this person that I found rather interesting. And so if you like a detailed and well-examined character study or interested in the kind of intellectual political world that Ravelstein moved in or like sharp and sort of like witty and pointed dialogue, then you may also like Ravelstein by Saul Bellow. Okay. I think now that we've gone through two people, we're going to do our existential question for the day. And so I'd like to pose the question to all my book friends. How do you pick what to read from your to-be-read list? Do you go by some sort of chronological order? Like the order you add to the list? Is it your mood, your season, or like some sort of random other element that gets you, that grabs you at the moment or something like that? So I'd like to know a little bit more about that. So I would say it kind of depends on a few things. Definitely my mood. I do not go in any type of chronological order. I feel like I add books to my to-be-read list just on whims quite often. So uh, I don't always feel like I need to necessarily read them in a specific order from how they're added to the list um, or when they were released or anything like that. It often depends on which books I can get my hands on at the time that I am looking for a new book. But definitely, I'd say mood is probably the number one thing for me. I, uh, I received a few books for Christmas this year, and I read one right away, really liked it, started reading the next one and actually put it down after the first chapter because I just was not, that was not the kind of book that I was looking for. So I moved on to the next one. I feel like back when we first started this podcast, I I did not say I was a mood-based reader. I don't think I'd say I, I described myself as a mood-based reader, but now I think that maybe I am. And, I, and that might might have to do with having a kid and not having any time to do anything anymore, including reading. And so when I do actually read a book, I want it to be something that uh, that I'm really in the mood for and really, really know that I'll enjoy. But what was the second book, Sadie? Come on. What was the one that you put down? Okay. So I feel like, Corrine, you're going to groan at this. So the book that I got for Christmas was the fifth book in a series. I know how you feel about this. I do not own the first five books in the series. Um, so it was, uh, or the, the sixth book, the sixth book in the series, actually. Um, it was The Sun Sister by Lucinda Riley, a series that I quite like, the Seven Sisters series. Um, I, I believe I've talked about the first book, The Seven Sisters, on this podcast. I know Corrine is 
is struggling right now. Um, <laughs> but yes, it was book number six I got for Christmas and I, I could not, could not start it. I will, I have full faith that I will start it, but I, I put it down and I moved on to, um, I'm not even going to remember the name of it, even though I'm reading it right now. Night of the Raven, Dawn of the Dove. I think that is, that is one by Radhi Mahotra. I'm sorry, Kareem. I think that's a great way, Sadie. I think you should just keep telling Kareem what, like, whatever volume you get because I don't think she can handle it so she's going to buy you all the other ones just so that she can like you know deal with this so yeah that's a great way to get books from Corrine I'm going to get complete series just by <laughs> driving Corrine <laughs> absolutely crazy just say oh I got number five again now I will say I proudly own every single book in the Six of Crows Shadow and Bone series there's not that many of them have all of them in order. They're all there. All five of them. Just thinking about your bookshelf causes me physical pain. The sad state of state of the the matter is that it it's in boxes at the moment. So it's not even on a bookshelf. So it was it was in Evie's room. We had to clear it. I'm sorry. We have a lovely bookshelf in her room that has lots and lots of um board books and it's beautiful. They're not in series. We have the first little blue truck, and I'm pretty sure, chronologically, the second little blue truck. I don't believe you. I don't believe you, and I can't trust you, because it's probably like the first one and then the ninth one. I can't trust you. I can take a picture. I'll take a picture. I'll try. Well, I might have to research and find out if it is, in fact, the second little blue truck. <laughs> I definitely have the first little blue truck. I think, Mark, you should go be Corinne some time, I think. Okay. I would say that it's not necessarily a mood-related thing, but themes. Like, if I really read one particular book of a kind, then I might want to read something, continue on with that, that's similar. Or sometimes after I've read a couple of their similar, I want to read something that's very different. So I try to go back to my read list and find something that's quite different to get, like, a different change of pace. And then I sort of go back and forth between those two kinds of ways a lot of the time. Other times it might just be like, oh, I need to read something for a, the podcast. What's on my list that I can read there? So then that's very much also a themed kind of way of reading something that I've been meaning to read. Yeah, that's absolutely similar because it's like I'm it all depends on what book I'm reading right now, because I'm so bad at reading books one after another. I read them like simultaneously. So like if I'm reading something like that requires a lot of brain power, then I will try to find something that is not. So then that's kind of how it determines what I'm reading next. And definitely, you know, scheduling in those keep it fictional books, but making sure that I have like other things on the go. So it doesn't always feel like I'm doing homework like constantly. So yeah. Corinne. Bold of you to assume there's a list. <laughs> As a, uh, when we started the podcast, we kind of talked like, are you mood reader? Or are you not? And I'm very much a mood reader. I literally like, I, I, I take out a lot of books from the library, <laughs> um, which is why I have to work here. Otherwise I would be bankrupt. So I have like big stacks of them at home. There's a designated part in our house where my library books have to live. Otherwise I leave them all over the place, like in my room, in the kitchen, in the hallway, on the couch often. So what I actually do is <laughs> I take my fingers along the spines and just kind of and just kind of like feel their vibe. And when I feel something that kind of like resonates that's like the right vibe for the right moment, then it gets to go upstairs into my room. 
So yeah, it's very much mood-based, very much like the atmosphere that the book is giving off of vis-a-vis its vibrations in the universe. And the deco edge? <laughs> yeah, obviously if it has a deco edge, it gets put into a special pile of books that are funner to read because deco edges are great. We'll never forget that, Mark. Oh! And wasn't it a pleasurable reading experience to be able to feel the texture of the pages as you gently flipped over, as you like, I, like flipped through the books or held it in your hand, feeling those nice, kind deckle edges, as opposed to like the impersonal, smooth, corporate cut pages? The only thing I will say that I like about the deckle edges is you're much less likely to get a paper cut on them. They're very, they're very soft on the edge. You're not going to get like one of those like weird crisp things where you go like and it just like slices your finger open. I will say that that's a nicer aspect of the deckle edge, but that's about as far as it goes. I can just see Mark like, you know, taking all the books and just cutting it one day <laughs> to line them back up. Someone's going to go to the like paper guillotine thing and just like slice them all straight down so they're even. This has been very trying. All right. I think we're going to move on to uh, Virginia. See what Virginia read this week. All right. So not having grown up in a, a place where books are as popular and accessible here, libraries are great here. I don't have those fond memories that you all have. I read that book when I was a teen, you know, that feeling. Um, and so, and also having come to like adult fiction, like a lot later in my life, you know, having read mostly kids and teen books for work, I just always feel like there's like a big, gaping hole in my knowledge of books. So thank you to Mark for having this topic. I think it is great, unlike what some other people think, because that gives me a chance to fill in those gaps. And I feel like you inspire me to go look at my list of offers that I'm like, you always hear about these offers. Let's read some of those. And not so much interested in kind of reading the canon just because they are books that somebody somewhere decided that everybody should read, but more like just to have a better understanding of how a genre evolved. And more importantly, I think maybe to to kind of read some of the books that inspire the authors that are writing right now that I love, to see what books influence them, to see what books shape them. And especially when they take those canon and those works and, and subvert them and decolonize them, it's just so much more interesting. But I do like to be able to to know about the original work so I can get a better context. So for this episode, I went with a giant in the science fiction genre. He wrote his first book published in uh, 1962 when he was 19 years old. He's turning 80 this year. And he was described at that time as a earth-shaking new kind of writer among other names. And now his name is mentioned in the same breath as other science fiction writers in the 60s, Clark, Heinlein, Herbert, Philip K. Dick, Ursula Le Guin. But he is the only Black and gay writer on those lists. So thanks to this episode, thanks to Mark, I can finally say I have read Samuel R. Delaney. And so the book that I chose for today is Babel 17, published in 1966, a Nebula Award winner and also a nominee for the Hugo Award. Our protagonist is Rydra Wong. She is a space captain and she's also a brilliant cryptographer. So when the government detected this series of mysterious codes that always seems to get transmitted right before a place gets attacked, they wanted to figure out what this code is saying. So they enlisted her to help crack the code. After looking at the code for a little bit, Raja was like, no, you've got it all wrong. This is not a code. This is actually an entire 
new language. And they have given this the name Babel 17. Raja said, you know what, if you want to know what these transmissions and what these messages are saying, we need to learn the language. And it just so happens that Raja, not only is she a space captain and a cryptographer, she's also a linguist. And she always has this knack of learning languages. And she knows quite a lot of them. And she's also a world-famous poet, by the way. While nobody recognizes that this is a language, she sees it right away. And of course, she's a perfect person to figure it out and to learn it. And as she was trying to go through this, the messages that were sent previously, she somehow figured out that the next location or where the attack is going to happen. So the government gave her unlimited resources to get a ship, get a crew together, to go to the location and intercept and stop the attack before it happens. Babel 17 sounds like, and it is, has many, many elements of kind of like a space opera. And that's usually how the book is categorized as. It's got a space war going on. It got a ragtag crew. There's spies and there's like traitors. There's sabotage. They get like captured multiple times. The crew gets separated. There's assassinations. They're invited to dinners where the hosts and hostess keep talking to them like they were food. It's an action-filled book for sure. However, I would say this space opera is also written unlike most space operas out there. And it's because of Delaney's use of language. His works, especially his most critically acclaimed book, Dahlgren, is often compared to the works of James Joyce. So you can see that like, this is definitely not your usual space opera. And I did not pick Dahlgren, even though it's his most famous work, because I don't want to throw myself off that deep end just yet. One day, maybe. But even though this is, unlike, again, somebody say short book are easy to read. This is a short book, but it is definitely not easy to read. And it definitely took quite a long time to read also. Because of that, not going to lie, there are parts where sometimes you get really caught up in the, the imagery that he writes or like his really eloquently described moments and scenes that sometimes you kind of get a little, it can get a little confusing and you might kind of lose the plot a little bit. But, you know, you just could be like, okay, moving on to the next thing because it's so interesting in the way he thinks and in the way he writes. And the most intriguing part of Babel 17, I think for anyone who loves languages, this is this is the book to read because it really does look at language. And I would say the main kind of thesis is that language influences how you think and how you perceive the world. And even as far as to say that language doesn't just influence it, but it actually determines it and it changes the way you think. And it's language first and then thoughts. If you don't have the words in your language, then those thoughts cannot exist. So that's kind of the premise of the book. And of course, in the case of Babel 17, it does way more than that. It doesn't just influence it. It, it also does a lot of interesting things with the person if you're able to eventually speak the language, Babel 17. And in the first scene that we meet Raja, She's telling the general from the government that, yeah, Babel 17 is the language. And as the general was leaving, you can see Raja just gripping the edge of the bar table and she's visibly shaken and her knuckles are all white. And it's because she is hit with how little gets communicated in that exchange. Because on top of all the talents that she already has, she's also maybe telepathic. 
so that she can kind of see what the general is really thinking. And, and none of that was communicated. And she feels such a loss when we talk to people and how little is really said. So there's a lot of really interesting exploration of how we communicate with one another. When she was getting her team together, when she's trying to find a navigation team and navigation teams are usually make up of what they call triples, which are three people always. And they are in some sort of very complex relationship, a bond, kind of like a, a polyamorous kind of relationship. And when she finds the two people that she thought would be suitable for her team, there's only two of them because the third member has died. So Roger has to find a replacement and she deliberately finds someone that does not speak the language because she wants them to find different ways to communicate so that to enhance that. So there's like stuff like that that's really like really interesting. And then there's she eventually meets somebody who speaks a language that doesn't have the words for I or you. So how does that affect the sense of self when there's no such thing as I. So all these thoughts on language is a common theme in Delaney's books. And being a Black and a gay writer too, sexuality, class, all of those are big themes in his books. And I think that's why a lot of readers, seeing that his books are a lot more inclusive and is writing from a different perspective, it feels that his books are not as dated and, and it's you could see this being written today rather than like sort of in the 60s. And as I was looking more things up about Delaney, nothing to do with anything, but that apparently coffee, more than any other beverage, is also mentioned most often in his book. So yeah, he's definitely my kind of writer. Um, so again, thank you, Mark. It is a great idea. Thank you so much for inspiring me to go look up these writers that is on my list for a while. And I'm hoping to read more of them. I found a few more that I, I, I should really be reading. And hopefully that will get me uh, to look away from those shiny new books that comes every day. Thank you, Virginia. Delaney, definitely very much a counterpoint to the Hemingway in many ways, both in terms of perspective as well as style of writing, the scope of the ideas presented and all these other things. Very very contrary in that way. So I think for then today, we're just going to finish off with Sadie. All right. Well, I am going to start off by saying that I, in fact, have the first three books in the Little Blue Truck series. Three of them. We did buy the Christmas book, which is, in fact, number three. So we have book one, book two, and book three all on Evie's bookshelf, nicely in order in Little Blue Truck. Just want to get that out there to help Kareen feel slightly better about who I am as a person. Slightly, slightly. So for this topic, I kind of went back and forth with what I was going to read or what I was going to talk about. And I, I kind of looked at, similar to Virginia, I'm like, well, okay, well, who are sort of the ones who are considered the greats? Who are the, the classics in, in the genres that I like to read? So I took out and started reading a Guy Gabriel K book in the fantasy genre. I, I chose the shortest one, but even still, when I started reading it, while I think that I might continue reading it, I realized there was no way I was going to get through even the 280 pages before we had to film today's podcast. I also took out a Silvia Marina Garcia book because after hearing about her work on this podcast, I know Corrine and Virginia have both talked about her, her books. Um, Tyler, my husband, has read her stuff and has really enjoyed it as well. I bought stuff for my mother, which uh, of hers that she really enjoyed as well. So I thought maybe that would be one that I've kind of have been meaning to 
uh, to read myself. But again, just timing did not work to my benefit. So in the end, I decided to go uh, with a book that I actually read last year that I had uh, been meaning to read this author. She is not quite as prolific as uh, some of the other authors that I've talked about, but she is in my genre. It is a book that kind of since I when I was started ordering all of the YA books, it's an author that I would see quite a bit. And I'm like, I I should I I feel like those those books are the kind of books that I would like. So that is what I decided to go with. So I decided to read Defy the Night by Bridget Kammerer. So this is not her first book, not her first series. She has uh, A Curse So Dark and Lonely, which is um, the Curse Breaker series, which is kind of her more I would say, well-known series. This book came out in September of 2021. And given the timing of the book and given the story of the book, I'm wondering if it was inspired by the pandemic. I don't know if that's the case. That was one of the reasons why it took me a little bit to read it, I think. During the pandemic, I wasn't fully wanting to read things that mirrored my life in that way. But by the last fall rolled around, I decided to give it a try. It's a book that I've been recommending to friends for quite a while, even though I had not read it. With the disclaimer that I have not read this, but I've heard other people have said it's good. So I figured it was time that I actually read it to see if I could back it with with an actual recommendation. Turns out I really liked it, so... Anyway, so Defy the Night takes place in the kingdom of Candela, and the kingdom of Candela is broken into different sectors, and each of the different sectors kind of focuses around a different industry. So there's the docks where all of the shipping and access to the ocean, there's some of the sectors out that have really great agriculture or the mines. Each sector kind of focuses around a different a different industry. But unfortunately, Throughout the kingdom, there is a big sickness that has been killing people at random. So it doesn't matter which sector you're in. It doesn't matter if you have money, if you don't have money. It, it just it affects absolutely everyone. But they have discovered that there is a cure or at least a way to make the sickness not as bad. It doesn't always cure somebody, but it, it can help. And this medicine is made from the moonflower petals, and they are only grown in a few different sectors. So it's a very, very hard-to-come-by medicine. And what this has created is that people who are living in the more affluent sectors are getting access to this medicine more than the people who are living in the not-as-affluent sectors. I think this is a a storyline and a reality that we can see quite a bit. And so the kingdom is basically on the brink of disaster because of this. The people who live in these sectors who are not getting medicine are obviously very sick. They're frustrated. Their family members and their friends are dying and they don't know what to do. Where the people who live by the palace, the people who have access to this medicine seem to be thriving. They don't look like they're suffering in the same ways. And to top it all off and kind of make it worse is the king of the country, Harrison, doesn't seem to show any mercy to anyone. He doesn't seem to show any sympathy to what the rest of this kingdom is dealing with. And so when somebody tries to rebel against the kingdom, rebel against not getting the medicine, he gets his brother, Prince Korik, to brutally and very quickly stop the rebellion. And that is usually done with torture. It's usually done 
with executions, and it's usually done very, very publicly. So everybody knows what's going to happen if they try to rebel against the kingdom. Now, this story is interesting because you see things from the perspective of somebody who's living in the wilds, which is one of the less affluent sectors. And then you also see things from the perspective of Prince Korik, who is living in the palace, obviously. He is the king's justice, so it's his job to kind of meet out this, the executions and the justice anytime that there is a rebellion. He's seen as cruel. He's seen as a terrible person. He's seen kind of as this monster. But you do learn a little bit about what caused him to become that way. So about four or five years earlier, Prince Cork and at that time Prince Harriston's parents were assassinated. They were in a council meeting and they were betrayed by one of their council members and they were killed right in front of Harriston and Cork. So the two brothers have vowed that they will never show weakness because if they show weakness, then they will make themselves vulnerable to the same betrayal and to the risk of assassination. So on the opposite side of this story, you have Tessa. Tessa is an apothecary and she lives in the wilds and she does everything that she can to help her neighbors and help her friends. And one of the things that she does is with her best friend, Wes, overnight, they sneak into the palace or into the palace sector. They steal moonflower petals from people who have them and they make medicine and distribute it amongst people in the wilds who need it the most. It is very risky. If they were caught, they would be executed immediately, but they both feel that this is the only way that they can make a difference and help the people around them. That is until rebellion strikes. So a group of rebels decides that they're going to try and make a point and try and stop the supply runs of this moonflower petal so that they can either destroy it so the rich people can't have it or get access to it so that they can have it for themselves. They are caught, as you could imagine. Most of them are executed in a public execution. Most of them are executed, but there are some that get away in kind of a scene that happens during the execution. Some of them do manage to escape. So after that, Harriston and Corrick and all of their security is much, much tighter. West decides that he does not think it is worth the risk to sneak into the palace anymore and to sneak into the houses to steal the flowers. Tessa, she thinks that they have to. She thinks that rebellion is the way to go and they have to keep doing it. So West goes on one more run into the palace. Well, as you can imagine, it does not go as planned. When the worst happens, Tessa decides that the only way that she is going to continue helping and figure out how to make their kingdom, how to save the kingdom, is to not only sneak into the palace sector, but sneak right into the palace. And so that is what she decides to do. One day she sneaks into the palace. And what she learns there is that things, again, as you imagine, are not exactly how they seem. Harriston and Cork might be different than she imagined, and they might not be who she imagined. I absolutely loved this book. It 
checked off all of the boxes of all of the fast-paced, YA, slight romantic elements that I like in a book. There's a second book, which I polished off as well really quickly, which is saying something when I had an 11-month-old at home and and couldn't commit a lot of time to reading. <laughs> um, and I'm desperately waiting for the third book, which I think might be coming out this year, but it might not be until next year. So that is Defy the Night by Bridget Kemmerer. Thank you, Sadie. Definitely another book that has its roots in reality from in the second half of the episode there with Virginia as well. And to start extent, myself and Kareen, we all kind of had somewhat reality-based, maybe a little bit less for Kareen, but who knows, maybe Hemingway tried to catch a giant fish one time and he got dragged away by it. Who knows? It, it seems like the thing he would do. <laughs> so I'd like to thank, again, all my book friends for the sharing their recommendations, maybe quote-unquote in Kareen's case. Um, but <laughs> thank you again, and we'll see you again next week. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm-hmm.